Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we are talking about the future of housing. I'm joined today by Emily Newton, who's Associate Director at Asale Architecture, by Caroline Harper, who's Chief Planning Director at Be First at Barkingham Dagingham, and by Sarah Carey, who's Executive Director for Place at Enfield Council. Um, Emily, let's start with you. I, I'd like everyone just to sort of quickly just give us 30 second snapshots of, of, of what they're doing, what their role is, some of the projects you're working on, and just to bring listeners in on, on, on what you're up to at the minute. Okay, thanks, Andrew. So, yeah, my name's Emily. I'm an Associate Director at Sale Architecture. I've been at the company for 10 years now. I'm really just focused on the earlier stages of design up to planning consent, focusing at the moment on lot on large-scale master plans as well as looking at sites for a well-known high street retailer helping them move into the build to rent market and I also head up the design review process at the company which I really enjoy doing. And Sarah? Thanks Andrew, I'm Sarah Carey, I'm the Executive Director for Place at Enfield Council and I look after all the services that relate to the built environment and then a then some, a little bit. Um, I, one way of thinking about that is bins to buildings. So I've got a large operational kind of services which do pick up, pay, take care of the parks, take care of the streets, um, do f- food and health and safety licensing. Then you've got planning and then you've got more strategic projects, which um, include things uh, like our council's property portfolio and how we manage that. But relevant for today's podcast, um, Meridian Water, which is a, a large um, sort of new bit of London, an area regeneration project that the council's the master developer for, and a 10-year house building program on top of that of about 10,000 homes. Sorry, Caroline, 3,000 f- homes. Got my number, 10 years, 3,000 <laughs> Let me get that right. That's all right. No, it's, it's, we're here to get things right. It's fine. Caroline, you've got you've got a few homes on the go as well. Yeah, we have. Um, so good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, as you said, I'm the Chief Planning Director for Be First, and Be First is Barking and Dagnum's Urban Regeneration Vehicle. I look after all things planning and building control, um, but it's kind of the statutory services that you would expect of council. And then I've also got a growing planning consultancy team. Um, you know, be first. Well, the borough has massive ambitions. You know, the the leader talks about fifty thousand homes. He regularly ups that by the you know casual ten ten thousand homes um, over the next kind of twenty years. And alongside that, big uplift in jobs to sort of twenty thousand and the quality of them. And be first. Our role is we are as well as doing the planning. We are a property developer, and we have a, a big pipeline of. Um, homes i think we've got about um three and a half thousand under construction at the moment um or you know have planning and and will be under Mm. construction um and in terms of um exciting projects um aside from the kind of estate regeneration side of things is uh, we've got huge swathes of industrial land and we're putting in place the kind of legislative frameworks that you need to unlock those so we can bring them forward for yeah. mixed use well, let's let's start there because i think a lot's been written about the resi side of things and we'll obviously come on to that but i think as we think about not just the future of housing but the future of london this need for co-location and this ability for housing to coexist with industrial and employment uses has been you know it's fair to say it's been a bit of a 
battleground over the last few years with obviously people on one side say, well, you nasty councils, you're giving away all this employment land and, and, and clearly the political establishment saying build homes, build homes, build homes. And to some degree, you guys are caught in the middle a little bit. So what are some of the solutions that, that you've been coming up with and, and how do you think they're, they're working? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're right. You've got those kind of um, drivers in terms of the political push for homes. And then obviously within London, you've also got that um, tension between the strategic function of London and we need industrial uses to support the city working. But then locally, there's also pressures on housing and how do we deliver that housing? And we have a finite amount of land, um, you know, I don't want to go into the green belt argument, but at the moment we are at least constrained by green belt. So it's how do we use that land more intelligently to to get more from it? Um, and I think you know my view is there is no one size fits all. I'm not saying that co-location or stacked industrial fits all industrial activities, but mm. it does fit some. But and these are things that you're trying out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, when we've been working. Um, I'll give you some examples. Yeah, so, so tell us, I mean, just just tell us what, what, what does co-location mean for you, uh, embarking? What does that look like? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about specific schemes because I think that's probably more um, tangible, if you like. But yeah, sure. 12 Thames Road um, is in one of our uh, transformation areas. It's strategic industrial land at the moment. It's got planning permission. And we've bought that. It's a council-owned site. We've brought it forward for, it now has planning permission for industrial at ground floor, and that's been designed largely for logistics. And then it's got 100% affordable above um, residential. Um, we've also got um, nearby on River Road, as part of the same area, it's called Remploy, which we've worked with the GLA on kind of stacked industrial, that's four stories. And the reason that I mention them is because it highlights, because there is a degree of scepticism within the industry as to how workable these kind of products are, we've got to taken the view that we need to show the private sector and um, occupiers that it's possible. So let's bring these forward ourselves. Um, and that's not to say that occupiers mm. aren't doing it ourselves. We've got, you know, scheming at the moment for stacked industrial from Seagrove, for example, and there are others that are doing the same. So it's not, it's not us by ourselves. Mm. But, but also, but the markets moved so much from from when Seagrove bought Brixton ten odd years ago that that we're at that point where pricing is ridiculous now. And you know, I guess presumably <laughs> you'll know from your time at JLL that there's a, there is a large element of herd mentality in in the commercial property market and once somebody's proved it and someone's done it everyone else piles in right yeah exactly and it, also if you look beyond you the uk i do think we're a little bit behind you know there are if you go to asia there are lots of examples mm. of where this works very well um paris um other european cities it's not it's not unusual it's just unusual here mm. um sarah Kerry, in terms of uh Enfield, this this need for the coexistence of employment, industrial space. How are you dealing with that? Given, uh, you know, given the, the the relative extremes you have of, of people in the area. Well, Enfield's got a large industrial reservoir, just like Barking and Dagenham, and that's something which actually, if you think about the last couple of years of pandemic, what's changed? It is really interesting to see the new. We've got different uses coming into that industrial land. Um, just like working in Dagenham, we've also got real interest in film. We've got a couple of urban farming um, businesses which are starting up in Enfield. And so it's been interesting to watch. I mean, logistics clearly plays a big part, but the kind of the change in uh, economic dynamic and employment opportunities in, in our industrial land is changing. 
I think particularly for Enfield, we've got actually big box retail. And going back to Caroline's point about making the best use of land in London, I think if the pandemic has accelerated lots of things, it's really accelerated the demise of large format retail in, in London, at least. I think somehow some, the market is a little bit undecided on that outside of London. And if it's pushed us as a council to really think about how we could be using some of that retail land better, um, particularly when it's not anywhere near an existing high street and it's got very good transport access. Mm. And and how do you go about doing that? I mean, I, I guess it's easier if you own everything, right? And you can you can take direct control and, and essentially do what you want within reason. But how do you deal with that where you don't where you don't own it? Well, Cal and I are both both planners originally at heart. <laughs> we do, do slightly different things these days, but uh, you do most of that through different formats of planning policy and encouraging uh, things to come forward. That can be a slow process, but I think if there's an acceptance among both uh, the landowners and the, the regulator and us as, as a local authority in that instance, that things can change and should change, then I think you, you sometimes can make them work, even if you don't have every single policy in place. Yeah. Emily Newton, a sale. Um, just on this theme of co-location, what, what do you need to do from a design perspective to make it work? How, how do you design something so that people can harmoniously live above a logistics facility or some sort of craft facility? I think it's a really interesting new sort of typology that's emerging. Um, obviously, we have these large format footprints of industrial space that we want to sort of maximise the land on um, it makes sense to build residential above it um, we need to build more homes and as you say there is the kind of um, issue of how to make that residential appealing to live in with with you know potentially quite a noisy use below but I think you know with the right design moves it, it, it can be done you know with controls over management of these buildings as well it can all work really well and uh, a scheme that we've done recently Vulcan Wharf in LLDC land is a co-location sort of last mile logistics hub but we have lined the edges of that industrial use with maker spaces so it really sort of humanizes the edges of those schemes as well. And do you see those maker spaces playing a more prominent role in high streets because one keeps banging on about the death of the high street which yeah, is a bit boring exactly. now. well exactly i think the high street we will kind of acknowledge that it needs some help there are lots of vacant plots coming forward at the moment especially post-covid and i think you know there's a real opportunity to diversify the mix of uses on the high street kind of see it in a different way and you know these high streets are ex extremely sustainable locations generally very close to transport hubs and it makes sense to to bring you know residents there bring, bring footfall and vibrancy by people living in these areas as well but yeah as you say sort of maker spaces and um, you know digital agencies you know you can be a lot more creative over what you know these high streets can offer in the future because there's, there's an endangered list of of artisans that the um the heritage lobby publishes isn't it it's, it's pub and that, that includes things like uh glass eye makers and mm. and wheel <laughs> pressing and and quite, there's quite a few random different things glass blowing and basket weaving i think um, yeah and, and people love going to see these things and you know people love visiting these kind of places so 
Yeah, I think. But right, yeah, they I think the, the nation probably have rather mm. have, rather have more glass blowers and betting <laughs> shops. One suspects. <laughs> um, Sarah, I'm just on this point about people living in high streets, one of the government solutions has been really going full throttle on on permitted development rights, and that's again been a bit of a. Uh, let's put this politely. It's been a little bit of a battleground, hasn't it? Um, with with people across the country. Councils in London don't seem to be a huge fan of the policy. Is it not a way just to get stuff done more quickly? Well, it's, it's a tough topic we could be here on a lot, but I think if you're talking about the future of housing, it's appropriate. So I'll, I'll say also that I've been helping the GLA with their high streets for all mission with recovery around that. So I've got um, spend, spending a bit of time with um, the GLAR, they don't pretend to speak on their behalf around this. And I think what's interesting about this round of permitted development changes is that even um, the larger institutional landlords in London, the BPF, London First, have said actually permitted development rights in London, because the residential values are so much higher than most high street ones, that it's it's really not appropriate in London because it's it's harming the future of what we could do with our high streets. If you want a diversity of uses, if you want to be able to redevelop them in the future for more intense uses or for um, kind of a different kind of high street, having residential through permitted development, which is a really sticky kind of use, it doesn't really change once you bring it in, is harming the future potential of London. And it's probably not, and it's not appropriate um, in the you know, to, to expand permitted development from the rights that we, we've been, they've, they've had for a couple of years. I do say it has delivered about 10% of London's housing every year for the past couple of years. So it is adding housing supply to London. I think everyone who's got experience with that directly, whether that, um, be as, you know, as Caroline and I in terms of approving prior approvals or whether there's architects or people who live in that housing would say that the quality of a lot of that housing is not housing that we'd want people to be living in, in the f- now or in the future. And that's something which most, you know, I think most local authorities are really trying to grapple with about how we can make the case for why permitted development is not not appropriate in, in cities. Mm. And uh, in terms, Caroline, in terms of the sorts of projects that, that Be First is working on. We had Pat Hayes on PropCast just before Christmas, and he was talking about some of the single-family housing projects you've got um, around well, around Fairloff and, 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 and other places around the borough. Where do you see, if we're talking about the future of housing, where, where do you see the future of, of construction coming along? Because we've got a, the skills crisis hasn't gone away climate crisis is now on people's radars and we don't seem to be doing things hugely differently as a construction sector is there a role for for you guys at a local authority level to be driving that change if so how uh well i think the short answer to that big question is is yes (laughs) um i mean we are and i say we um be first lbbd working with the royal we (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, working with other local authorities, including Enfield, um, on MMC, kind of buyer's club is what it's called. Um, what does that look like? So that's a mass procurement exercise, or is it some sort of after dark betting circle? <laughs> yeah, well, a nifty name. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's a discreet poker club. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea is that it becomes a kind of joint working and pulling together at scale um, a kind of kit of parts for MMC. And the reason there's, you know, several re- well-rehearsed reasons for that, improves quality, 
sustainability and performance benefits and also potentially um, cost savings and quicker construction. Mm. I mean, the chat there are, again, well rehearsed, but lots of challenges with the MMC sector at the moment. Um, there is a lot of noise, if you like, and by that I mean it's knowing who who actually can deliver and who can deliver at scale. I think we're kind of on the cusp of what the potential is there. And then, you know, you touched on climate change and and I mean that again is is a massive topic and I feel very much that the property sector and I include construction in that is again on the cusp of what do we really do about that energy the technology isn't quite where we need it to be as yet how mm. do we incorporate that district heating networks is kind of old technology now doesn't really fit but air source heat pumps aren't quite there yet so we're in this kind of shift if you like and what we do about that and it you know, links into transport and and all those kind of things so these are you know very big topics but as a well, as a council there's only so much you can do right because you, you don't there, there is only so much you can do of course but there is also an active role that we can take and mm. you know we're we're producing kind of guidance if you like that builds on guidance that we've done previously kind of design guidance on what can MMC look like for our own portfolio mm. and we've got certain schemes coming forward like our temporary accommodation uh, Waybridge Sugden Way was built using MMC we've got Padnell Lake housing development that's about 300 units once it's all complete that will be MMC and we're looking at how do we roll out some MMC across the entire portfolio and do yeah. research on that so there are things that are happening and I think the reason that I mentioned that is it shows again third parties what what can be done and the same it, you know works the other way as well you know other developers are net carbon zero and all of that kind of stuff is very much on everyone's radar and I think there will be a lot of kind of cross-pollination and collaboration in order to get where we need to be yeah and uh, sarah you're using meridian waters as, as a well you know, i'm not saying you're using it but it, it certainly seems to me like a potential potentially fantastic showcase for a lot of different thinking on on a variety of different levels both in terms of of, of mmc and also this focus on intergenerational housing that that, that you're bringing forward um, and this, uh, this Emily, this, this is a project that, that you guys won, wasn't it? Through yeah. So we were the winning submission of the Meridian Water Placemaking with Purpose competition um, last year, and um, yeah, really sort of very much driven by the sort of need that we need to create more efficient and sustainable buildings for the future. So as you say, it's a community-focused scheme creating intergenerational living, but at the same time, it's also putting forward prototype really for how we could build for the future and key principles behind what we're proposing are increasing the lifespan of buildings, basically eliminating the need, sort of new build expenditures and I guess kind of seeing it almost like a Victorian warehouse principle, you know, they're being repurposed nowadays for lots of different uses, but they were built, you know, 100 years ago. So they've had a sort of a good lifespan. Also sort of in, in our design at Meridian Water, designing for disassembly, making sure that materials have an afterlife and that they don't have to go to landfill. And also sort of part of that, the actual materials we use, minimizing embodied carbon in those. So kind of looking towards the future, really making sure we're ready to hit some of these kind of stringent sustainability targets that are sort of, you know, coming up. Mm. And uh, Sarah, how do you see, uh, how do you 
at a, at a local level interact then with, with with some of the variety of different design codes and, and regs that are that are being funneled down through government because it's a lot of a lot of reviews a lot of updates uh, it must be bundles of paperwork well virtual paperwork i'm guessing now but but nonetheless pdfs full of stuff that comes through your desk every other month i'm guessing of of, of different things you've got to follow and abide by H- how do you possibly keep on top of it and, and how how are you able to to i guess with, with projects like the one emily's describing be progressive and 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 and, and look forward i think i'll start from the perspective that i'm quite uh, I guess I use the word progressive. We'll, we'll use that word. I'm quite positive about the fact that this, the real estate industry, the development industry and local government can change and evolve to be, to build things better than even five or 10 years ago. And it's something I've been passionate about throughout my career. Um, particularly about uh, environmental standards and buildings. It's something that even back on, um, Andrew, you were yeah, the BPF, tried to get the BPF to lobby more on. And I, I think that the future home standard is... I got shot so- down. You remember, though? I was, <laughs> I was joking about this with Ian Marcus uh, a few weeks ago. We, we didn't put it on the tape, but uh, I, I did remind them of, of a paper that I put to them, uh, all of the senior bods, God knows when, about 12 years ago. And I got, I think, obviously, I had long curly hair at the time. They were like, who's this joker? Uh, and the history has proved me right. But I'm glad you remember, Sarah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that the future home standard is a, is a long time coming and a little bit late, but it is better to have national regulation on energy efficiency and kind of building fabric standards than, than have that done locally. And it's really, it's a good thing to be bringing forward and we should, as you know, as an industry, we should be embracing it. Mm. I think there's a lot of other regulation, which is still kind of floating through. We're all grappling just, you know, local authorities, just like, um, you know, RPs in the private sector are grappling with the implications of changes to fire safety in buildings. And I don't, I think, you know, everyone who's involved in the industry has, can't, we cannot underestimate the impact that's having. But I, like, I'll, I'm quite an optimist. I said progressive, I guess, and think that that actually will lead to better quality of buildings in the future. And they, I mean, those are all quite tangible things, but how does that then get reconciled when policy is banging on about really subjective stuff like beauty? Because everyone's banging <laughs> on about, well, well, that, but, that, but that's it, isn't and, it? Andrew, I'll remind you that the planning system was actually developed to enable growth and development to happen. And it's at the end of it, there's a presumption that that should happen, presumption that development is, is we need to be meeting the needs of, of society and the economy. And if you want to regulate something to make it happen, like if you want to kind of put a constraint on that, I fundamentally think that planning is n- probably not the best place to do that. If we're really serious about fire safety, we don't put that in a planning discussion. We put it in building regulations. If we're really serious about energy and carbon emissions, those should go in again in building regulations. But they're and not I, there, I, are they? And, that, and that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? What? Certainly when it comes to, to, well, to environmental standards, and this sits at the heart, I, I guess, of, of the current debate that, that's being had around retrofitting buildings and, and, and the degree to which developers are incentivized just to, just to do the right thing. Because in, you know, in a commercial setting, it's often much cheaper to flatten a building than to repurpose it. There's no, there's no benefit that you get afforded to to keep stuff i think there's a there's a there's a current push i think from the aj actually for a campaign called retro first which is really trying to encourage people to consider keeping and retaining existing buildings you know for sustainability 
um, considerations and, and one of their ideas is actually reducing fat from 20% down to 5% to incentivize this because yeah otherwise you know what mm. why would developers consider doing that I think and, and shout out to Will Hurst and AJ Property Week System Magazine Architects Journal because it, it, it's got a lot of traction that campaign and they, they've done a fantastic job of of getting that out there um there's but- also um how do we incentivize kind of house owners and the reason I mentioned that is, you know, in Barking and Dagenham, we've got Beckentree Estate, which is one of, I think, one of the oldest mm. estates in London. It's its centenary this year. There's been ongoing work, and this isn't within uh, my team, but at LBD, as to how do we help people retrofit their homes so they're more energy efficient? And, you know, how do we help finance that as well as incentivize it? Bearing in mind that particularly during COVID, you know, we had record levels of householder applications for house improvements um so it's kind of building on that momentum and Mm. how do you bring that in um again because you know if we're going to tackle climate change in any meaningful way we've it's not just the the big kind of developers we've got to do it from yeah. all different but this levels. is why it needs to be done on a, on a city scale you know the the sorts of technologies that could be mass purchased to for to help with renovations are going to be much more cost effective to do at a city level for 32 local authorities than for one or two and and as you said earlier caroline i think there's also just just a bit of confusion uh, and, and immaturity with some of the technologies that are there you know everyone's got very excited about ground source heat pumps but there are arguably significant pitfalls to those technologies that yeah. have quite been discovered yet I mean, and there is a really I, I, maybe i'm being unfair but i do think there's a risk of of going down the diesel car route where we turn around and go right here's the amazing solution and a few years later oops shouldn't have done that yeah absolutely i mean i think one of my and there are many but one of my disappointments with the <laughs> planning reform so far is the lack of kind of innovation and imagination if you like of how do we tackle things like climate change it seems to be the same kind of stuff that is being regurgitated and i like that when the national design code came out last week and it talks about tree-lined streets Mm. and i just like oh like thanks for that i mean that's not new is it i mean (laughs) but what 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 do we do though i mean emily newton other than not building anything how does construction and development which is arguably responsible for 40% of global carbon emissions. Yeah. How does an industry that creates 40% of global carbon emissions help save the planet? Because um, it seems a bit paradoxical to suggest it can, doesn't it? I don't think it is a contradiction. Uh, as I said, I think we do. We need to be thinking about how we design more efficient and sustainable buildings for the future. And um, as, as I mentioned, obviously, in Meridian Water, our scheme um, is, is looking at kind of a prototype for how this, this can happen. And I think really the way to, we need to think about it as well as collaboration. We need to get all our heads together, not try and solve it on our own, but, you know, get sort of everybody who's an expert in their field to, to kind of really think it through because it's not an easy answer. You know, it's, 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 um, and it, it might mean that we need to try a few options. We need to, you know, do things like this Meridian Water opportunity to develop a scheme as a prototype. So it's a really great way to start kind of looking at mm. how we take things forward. And, and and in terms of the planning bill that, that that's coming forward, what are some of the the things, some of the the measures, reforms that you think need to be need to be wrapped into that? Um, so Sarah's talked about using building regs more effectively, which 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 does make a lot of sense. But what other things does, should planning be covering? 
Well, I think just going back on the building regs thing, there is quite an interesting um, movement. Again, at the moment, there's quite a push for this new um, idea of, of um, part Z, which is really kind of trying to get embodied carbon sort of the requirements for what you need to do to that into law, really, um, mm. because without that kind of enforcement you can't yeah you, you so the minute it's just it's is it sarah is it, is it just on major projects i can never i can never quite remember the specific rules on this in terms of where currently if you're developing you have to publish whole life carbon assessments it's on call-in size projects is it is it mayoral like yeah things that are referable to the mayor i, d- I think one of the answers to your question is actually to say the UK, the UK signed up to Paris Agreement and we have a trajectory and a kind of carbon budget that a con- as a country we're trying to work towards now there are lots of people, including the government's own auditors, who are saying they're not we're not moving fast enough on that trajectory. But I think the right way to think about it is that if we need to meet our societal needs, we need to provide more housing in different kinds for different generations. And we have a carbon budget. What's the best way to spend that budget? Rather than arguing about whether it's possible to build zero carbon or things like this, it's about trying to be yeah. use that budget to its for given the fact that we're spending it now, it's gonna have an effect on future generations to the best that we can. And that's one of the things that at Meridian Water would We've set out with our environmental and carbon strategy is is to say, look, this is our budget. This is how we're going to try and work towards it over time. And that recognition, the same way that companies have to put on their missions and reduce them and governments do, I think it's you you need to as an industry, we need to recognize that we we are impacting the environment and that we can manage that better. Um, not that we can suddenly magic it away. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, look, let, let's bring things to a close. I'm just keen to go around the table and, and maybe get two things from each of you, two things that you think need to happen over the next five, ten years just to improve housing in London, improve the, the, the wider profession. We haven't, I mean, we haven't talked about skills in, in the profession. So maybe that's something that you, you guys can cover off as we go around the room in terms of what needs to happen with, with bringing in not just uh, a more diverse array of skills that we, we talked about recently with, with Liz Peace and, and Emma Carriaga, who obviously Sarah knows very well, and, and well, you all do, everyone knows Emma, um, and, and Sadie Morgan. Um, we were talking on that podcast around diversity and, and, and particularly designing and and, uh, and how we design more structures to bring more people from different backgrounds into, into, you know, into design, planning, architecture, development. What are the things that need to change and, and, and how are we going to sort out some of the increasing skills problems? So let's start with Caroline because she's closest to me. Mm, thank you. I mean, going at it from a slightly different tack, I think um, one of the things that needs to change is a wide scale kind of attitude shift, if you like, in the sort of planning profession. From who? From professionals, politicians, from professionals, or people like several, me? And there's several different avenues there. I get super frustrated with the kind of divide between public and private. I don't think that dualism is particularly helpful. You know, when I left the private sector to go and work for Be First, I got a lot of questioning about that. And I don't think that kind of thing should be novel. That should be a given. And I, from my experience, I think working in the private sector, I had very limited true understanding, though I did definitely claimed otherwise, of the role of politics. Um, And then I really notice in the public sector, you know, sometimes really great planners, but they could really do with a bout of working in a property consultancy and getting that kind of commercial astuteness. So I I think that's not necessarily something you can enshrine in a planning bill, but I think the profession needs to take that kind of 
shift in attitude to become much more less that planning is a kind of tick the box exercise and this is really difficult because I you know completely believe that you need to put frameworks in place because otherwise it's just ripe for exploitation Um, and I think one of the problems with our system is that everything is negotiable so I do actually have some time for the planning reforms trying to create more certainty um, earlier in the process whether that's been done in the right way not convinced but coupled with that needs to be a kind of you know, a scheme lands on a planner's table and it's a decent scheme and it's going to deliver various different types of housing product except or whatever it is. And rather than say, well, actually, that's not right because it doesn't tick these boxes, it needs to be kind of, well, actually, that's really good. How do we make that happen? And that is happening, you know, but it's sometimes you come across a more... Um, Just a computer says no approach. Yeah, exactly. And and that's not, not very helpful, is my view. And then I think the other thing, I'm going on a bit, um, but we need to go outside of the property sector. I mean, it's a fallacy that development can deliver everything. We have failed on delivering sufficient infrastructure, various different types of infrastructure for years and years and years. And there needs to be some wider thinking about that. And what role can we play in transport infrastructure, green space which has been you know absolutely catapulted up the list of Mm. importance in the last 18 months or so and you know we we are a wealthy city we're a wealthy country and we should be absolutely smashing it on what we're delivering but we try and make development really sweat too much and it can't deliver everything it's impossible Mm. sarah i might do a slight cop out here andrew because i have a carolina and i agree on this element of so much on this element of the kind of usefulness of different backgrounds of people who've worked in public and private sector coming together to figure out what's what's right or what's the best thing we can do in a on a specific site in specific location mm. but um, how do you make that how do you make that actually happen because it's, it's fine to sit here and say that yeah well i'm i'm one of the directors of an organization called public practice which is helping it's sort of running a kind of recruitment facilitation campaign and program to do placements of people who want to go work mostly at the moment from the private sector into public sector but i we're going to and we're trying to grow that across the UK, but I do think it needs to go both ways as, as Caroline yeah. said. So a little bit of a cop out that that's actually really helpful in a company when it comes to housing. So how do people find out about that? What's the website? Publicpractice.org, I think. I should know off my head. That's right. We'll Google public practice. I'm sure it will. It's sure a good it, little but... shout out for that. Yeah, that, that's fine. And, and I mean, I mean, when you, when you switch, did you, did you have any of the, uh, I guess the, the bat chat that Caroline was just de- de- describing just now? Oh, people still ask me about it all the time with a little bit of a like, what, 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 excuse my language, but why the hell did you do that tone? Um, when was it you moved? <laughs> I was, how, when, when was it? I, I can't remember. But. I still get it too. <laughs> it's like over three years ago now. <laughs> and when, when did you, when did you, when did you switch? Yeah, the same as Caroline, about, about the same three, time. Three, four years ago. Years ago yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, I, I guess there's, there is this perception that local councils are badly resourced and they have bad people and that's why they make bad decisions that is the, the that's the allegation that, that comes to you from the private sector right but equally i think there's clearly a need for better resource because planning historically was quite a creative profession wasn't it It was something that was a very enviable it profession. was in the olympics <laughs> true story really <laughs> yeah when in what sense in la in the nine, 1948 i think it was how did that work 
I can't remember. I just try to remember that fact because it blows my mind. Right, well, well, we'll, we'll look that up while Emily gives gives her 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 two pence worth on what you know, couple of things that you'd like to see happen over the next few years in the in the industry. What what would make planning in London? What would make housing in London better for 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 the clients and and partners that you work I, with? I do just just kind of following on what the others have kind of said about kind of I guess working with public-private partnerships and our experience recently has been a really good one actually working with Connected Living London which is a JV between TFL and Granger it seems to me to be a sort of really good way to build new homes on public land and you kind of get the benefit of bringing private companies in to help unlock some of these sort of difficult constrained sites particularly you know TFL have some very you know difficult sites I guess alongside railway land so yeah I think that's a, it's a really good point that's been mentioned on that other than that I'd probably just mention I guess thinking about making sure that we're providing homes for key workers and keeping them in the city there's maybe a bit of a thought about the kind of different types of housing that we could be thinking about sort of longer term you know maybe more support for things like co-living which is a fairly new sector and um, I think the sort of GLA is starting to get on board with the idea of it so we've we've done a, a couple of well a few schemes that are co-living recently including um, Garrett Mills which was one we did with the collective which is being built out at the moment mm. and it seems like a really good way to sort of introduce sort of um, affordable housing in this sort of way of discount, discount market rent that is actually sort of focused on being given to key workers so it's genuinely affordable so I guess yeah it's it's just making sure that that we keep key workers in the city they don't sort of leave and as you say the city gets hollowed out mm. and that's been the exciting thing with, with that Kingston project because the, the council were very supportive of that because they recognized that you were going to be driving footfall into well around the town center with 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 people that were going to basically support local economy yeah so that that one you're referring to is fife road in kingston that's another co-living scheme that we've done recently um yeah and as you say it's it's bringing people back into the into the high streets and bringing that footfall and vibrancy that i think is really needed hmm. to bring it back and to is life. there more is there more acceptance of co-living because You've been one of the few practices to actually get planning consent on these projects. I haven't yeah, been too many that have. Well, I think when we first did the co-living schemes that we've worked on, um, GLA weren't. We kind of, you know, almost avoided speaking to them because they weren't supportive. But now, sort of, in the more recent ones we're doing, they're um, they're getting involved and they're giving their sort of input on those. Um, it might be that some of these co-living schemes coming forward, you might kind of lock in that you know they. Uh, they stay as co-living for a sort of a long-term kind of arrangement but yeah it's it seems to be sort of emerging and becoming a bigger kind of asset class mm. well it's exciting we'll have to kind of watch that space and it turns out caroline wasn't lying about the uh, this this <laughs> olympic wasn't. medal no you weren't lying i've just just checked and then the 1928 olympics in amsterdam this is an article by john ellidge so i trust john he's a pretty good journalist so apparently uh, at that 1928 olympics in amsterdam the olympic stadium won a gold medal um in amsterdam and and i thought john, it was la john, so i stand corrected <laughs> john writes that the, the the silver went to denmark for a swimming pool 
uh, and the bronze went to a Frenchman called called Jack Lambert for a for a stadium at Versailles. So uh, interesting, but we'll we'll have to see what what happens. Uh, with um, well, we'll have to see what happens. But I I think one of the interesting parallels, just going back as as we as we close off, one of the interesting parallels on that skills front is is that it did take us fifteen years, didn't it, to become not an embarrassment on the global stage for sports, both for football and 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 athletics and. And maybe Sarah, what you're describing in terms of filling in this skill shortfall does is going to require quite a a big, long-standing investment. I mean, I, you are um, you sound exactly like a, how one of the government's own committees on how to implement planning reform. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Really? We're, not, we're not alone in saying that there needs to be an investment in in skills and planning. So. Okay. Oh well, we'll leave it. There. I'm not. I, I, yeah, I'm not. Not sure if that is a. Uh, I, I. I. I don't. Know. I take everything as a compliment. So that's the best way to live your life. But look, thank you once again to all of our guests, to Sarah Carey from Enfield Council, to Caroline Harper from B First at Barking and Dagenham, and to Emily Newton at Assail Architecture. Thank you very much to Alex Peel and Howard Martin for engineering and producing this episode of PropCast. And coming up, we'll be having BossCast interviews uh, with the bosses of Argent, bosses of Granger, Great Portland Estates, Soho Estates, and, and a bunch of other interesting folk. And if you'd like to get involved, please drop us an email. Please subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Spotify, etc. Just search PropCast online and keep checking Property Week for the latest news and insights. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Cheers.